for a kingdom that's coming to the west, to the west. The mercury is rising, no relief on the horizon. Just seven days of summer to survive. Stay alive. The Camby Report was produced and recorded on the traditional territories of the Quiquitlam, Mississaugas of the Credit, Anishinaabek, Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. It's August 25th, 2023, and there are 1,149 days left until the Vancouver Municipal Elections. This is the Canby Report. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Welcome back to our bi-weekly once-a-month show. <laughs> yeah, we're, 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 you know, firing on all cylinders. It's It's summer. It's summer, and honestly, we're doing better than we were at this point in the last election cycle. Oof. What what was that people just heard off the top of this show, Matthew? So that was a song I wrote. I I was doing some reading about the the 2021 heat wave, which was like truly awful. And you can refer to our our previous episode, the Cruel Summer Edition, if you want to relive that particular time in all of our lives. But as it turns out, it was in fact the deadliest weather event in Canadian history. And I thought, well, if this, you know, folk music does this kind of thing. If, if there is going to be a disaster, then it should have a song written about it at the very least. So I wrote it. I, <laughs> I was going through a bit of a heat thing out in Toronto myself, and it just made me think back on that time. It was truly terrible. And one of the things I didn't mention in the song was that, like, over a billion sea creatures died as well. (laughs) But, yeah, I I believe we're including the full song at the end of the episode. And please give it a listen. I don't really know what I'm going to do with it, but there there it is (laughs) for your listening pleasure. Yeah, the the other thing that made me think about it was that my, my brother was recently evacuated from Kelowna because of the fires there. And so... It is, it is a good time to remember that like most fires in BC are human caused, so we can all, you know, only we can stop forest fires. Yeah, there there are some of the lightning strikes, but we all need to be much more careful. I was out camping last weekend, and it was my kids' first time camping, and we couldn't have a fire. And I'm pretty sure they will never actually get to sit around a campfire in their lives. Yeah, unless they go in the winter. Yeah. We might bring one of those propane things next time. We have one of those in our backyard. We just didn't have the space with all the crap you have to drag with two little kids. But it's bleak. Thankfully, there's a little bit of good news in the last few days on the wildfires in the Okanagan. The Shushwap, meanwhile, isn't doing that great. I talked about that with Scott on Politicos this week. Especially the like weird counter-protest to the wildfire crews is a terrible story that we don't need to get into here. But basically, the convoy chuds are against all lockdowns including fire restrictions and stuff like okay well i i don't know i think of that episode of the west wing and it's like you know there's a voter out there that that thinks 
you know, I like this Bartlett fellow, but now that I see that he's in favor of fire, except it's the opposite. It's the, the voters that are totally insane. Support more <laughs> independent folk music and podcasting <laughs> at patreon.com slash report. Yes, patreon.com slash report. your source for citizen journalism here in the internet, I guess. I, I should note that we technically, well, well, labeling ourselves as citizen journalism are not banned from Facebook yet. Yes, I think our Facebook page is still working. I almost never post anything there, but go, you, I'm pretty sure you can share canbyreport.ca links on Facebook, so share our podcast as the only news on Facebook. I think Politicoast is also available on Facebook, too, so share the <laughs> Leg and Boot Media <laughs> podcasts all over your Facebook page. Maybe I should start putting more blog and written content, or maybe that would get us flagged. I don't know. I don't have time for this <laughs> until we get paid more. No. So, what's been happening in Vancouver? So, I was on the, the Board of Variants up until December of last year, and apparently it's just gone to total shit in my absence. <laughs> That's unfair. The, the people who are on the Board of Variants are, are, like, good folks, but, like, they are responsive to public pressure, and Dan Fumano has a recent story out, out about how a Vancouver neighborhood mobilized and defeated a daycare. Just bane of property values. Children. This, this is a wild one. So this daycare operator runs the Douglas Park Academy, which is right by Douglas Park in... I don't actually even know what the neighborhood's called. It's between Oak and Camby. It's kind of near Shaughnessy. It's not quite Mount Pleasant. I don't have the maps in front of me, but you know, lot of homes there, a lot of single family homes, some apartments within walking distance. And we have a daycare shortage across the province and especially in the city of Vancouver. The city has a bylaw on zoning around daycares that you can open them in residential neighborhoods, but there are certain levels where if you want to do an expansion or otherwise include it, you have to go through the board of variants to essentially get permission. Like they're allowed with like making sure it's within the neighborhood character and all that stuff that board of variants is responsible for. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the neighbors decided that a one story daycare with eight kids, that was fine. But if she's going to two stories, it's going to be wild and you won't be able to open your window between noon and one and four and five without like the noise destroying your peace and sanctity in this rural area. These are rural <laughs> suburban area. These are the actual comments people were making opposing this. They were massively terrified of the increased traffic, which I guess would come from the drop-offs because no mm -hmm. one would be like people don't park at daycares you have a couple ECEs and that's about it in the end the board of variants heard the concerns and unanimously rejected the application to expand yeah which is brutal i i will say that like during my time on the board of variants i i mostly met by zoom or or by video conferencing and so the the actual appearance of like a room full of people who are all asking you, like, quite angrily in some cases to do something, is a significant pressure to a public board. It, it is a, like, you're, you're going to have to walk out of the room and, like, walk through that crowd of people. And that that can be quite intimidating. I, I think it is a lesson 
on how democracy does not stop at elections. Yes. That is a very important lesson. So if you if you see a development permit application that you support, at the very least, go like write something to the, the email that you are provided. If not, go to the meeting. If it is being opposed in a kind of organized manner, the only thing that is going to get it passed is a counter-organization. I want to dig into this more because Fumano did such a fantastic job on this story. He highlighted the comments of several people in this, and it's worth just like reading some of them to understand why people were so mad. So one of the first neighbors was Brian Pierce. He wrote in his written comments, among other things, that if this precedent is set, there is nothing stopping another homeowner to convert their home into a funeral home, motorcycle repair shop, corner store, gym, dry cleaner. And then he threatened legal action. Okay, number one, that's not, no. Like, legal action for what cause? Like, why? What would you you sue? What's your cause of action there, sir? Another neighbor, Mark Goodman, complained about the traffic that would come if 16 parents were having to be picked up and dropped off five days a week, never minding that a good daycare is a neighborhood daycare where you can walk to like mine is with my kids. Mm -hmm. What's hilarious here is Fumano notes that Goodman's email identifies him as the principal of Goodman Commercial, a local commercial real estate firm, which in his industry newsletter has argued in favor of increasing the pace and density of real estate development in the city. I guess that doesn't include the pace and development of daycare developments. Yeah, the necessary amenities that make places worth living. Who could have thought? Like, I I just don't, I don't understand. Like, a lot of these comments are very red herringy. A lot of them are just like weird nimbyism. Like James Leto, a former longtime senior planner with the city of Vancouver, who called it It's Too Much, A Bridge Too Far, and threatened that this doesn't reflect the zoning of the area, which is not for quote unquote institutional uses. This is literally across from a park. People are complaining about children being noisy in a daycare that would be positioned across from a park that includes playgrounds. Yeah. Like, I, I actually just don't understand what the, the logic was on, on, on the part of a lot of these people. Daycares don't decrease property values. They make communities more livable. It's, like, it, it improves your buyer base if you are thinking of selling property. Like, I, I just don't get it. Yeah, Fumano had a follow-up story on how parents are outraged by this. This this story like lit up what's left of Van Pauly Twitter. And so, yeah, people were naturally outraged and upset. City councillors have started to react to this saying this was this seems ridiculous and they're going to look into it in whichever ways they can. It's the slow period of the summer, so I haven't followed up to see which motions have actually moved through council, if any, but I think there have been some questions to staff about, like, come on. Lisa Dominato has put forward some questions to staff. In specific instances, does council have the authority to overturn a decision at the Board of Variants? And the broader systemic issue is how do we prevent situations like this, which is, you can't. Uh, no, you change the zoning. Yeah, you, like, yeah, f- fair enough, fair enough. You... <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you abolish just, you, the board of variants. I mean, probably not the best solution. It's pro- 
the, I, I think that's a bad idea. I think the Board of Variants isn't actually, in general, is does good work like with a zoning system that is like overly restricted. But like, this is what I, I mean when they say, you know, democracy doesn't stop at elections. If you if you have a bunch of people who are going to in, effectively, I don't want to say intimidate, but like lobby, you know speak out forcefully at the Board of Variants, they are going to listen. I think this leads us well into a story from Kelowna, and we I think we've only talked about Kelowna once or twice on this podcast, and that was following the last election, but there was just a wild story from the development permit process in Kelowna over a 25-story rental housing tower that was going to go in downtown, where council has voted to reconsider its approval of that after it turned out that the developer had paid 24 speakers $250 each to come and speak in favor of it. Hmm. I don't know if this is not allowed. The developer says, there's no law against this, and if they rescind our approval because of this, we're going to sue them. Like, it's one of those things that feels very illegal. It feels illegal, but, like, who were they... Like... They're not bribing anyone. I, I just, like... I I don't think it is illegal. I, I think it... I think it should be. It feels like it should be. It feels shady. But, like, I yeah, I just don't know. It, it just definitely seems very... Like, they it, are specifically defending it, calling it a $250 per diem paid by the public relations vendor to students who spent time, effort, and in many cases, hard costs for travel or missed works in order to participate. They have not hidden the reimbursement. They've been transparent whenever asked about it. And they say, quote, this did not break any rules, policies, or laws. And in fact, we know many who speak in opposition do so because of their bias, as most have financial motivations. And like, I mean, it's kind of true, but it's also like there is a substantive difference between a ch- an e-transfer of $250 and like this change will affect my financial situation down the long term. Yeah, even though the the the, the latter is probably more valuable, like I like I don't know. I I feel like this is classic corruption, right? This feels this is the classic like conflict of interest kind of situation that may not be explicitly banned because no one thought it would happen at this level and this blatantly. So they never wrote the law to stop it. But like when people think about dirty politics, it's like money in paper bags and that's what this is. It's not like always the in the long term, this will affect the property values, and therefore there will be an increase in their financial net position. It's no cash and paper bags is dirty stuff. But okay, so like, what if to compensate people for having to take time out of the day, go speak at a public hearing, take time off work, they invited people to, and a plus one or whatever to a you know cruise on Lake Okanagan, open bar that evening, full full spread food drinks you know, etc. Would I, that be... You You know the law better than I do, but I feel like most conflict of interest law, when it gets written, recognizes a gift to be more than just cash in a paper bag. Yeah, but, like, conflict of interest laws has to deal with... And bribery like, laws. <laughs> like, it's, it's abuse of public office. These people don't have public office. Like, I think what would be a decent system here is this does highlight that speaking at a public hearing is prohibitive 
right? It is mm -hmm. an effort and a, a personal cost to do mm -hmm. so, whether that's just the time, the annoyance, the fear you have to get over to get there. And mm -hmm. I'm not against people being compensated for that. But no, if we're only, no, if we're no. only compensating one like subset of views, that's problematic. Like if we're going to compensate every, someone, let's compensate everyone who shows up. That flawed feels like a, a, a way to take the already messy and messed up public for, per, I mean, that uh, just underlines that hearing. public hearings are broken, not that. Yeah, no, they are absolutely broken. And like, does, does like, am I opposed to this development? No, it's a good development. Seems it's, like it. Like it's stupid that it's called Muse because like fucking everything is called Muse. I don't know why we can't like, it's just ironic that, that like, it speaks to creativity and yet belies a complete lack of creativity. At any rate, like, I I don't know that the the firm doesn't have a a case if they plan on suing. Like, they they absolutely should look at whether or not you know they 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 could take action to either force the city to reissue the permit or. Like this is the kind of investigative stuff that the city theoretically should be doing. Maybe, maybe it just becomes a standard question: Were you paid to be here today? Who knows? Back in Vancouver, someone who thinks they have a lawsuit and a reasonable grounds for one is BD Group, the developer, as an appeal board has decided that, in fact, the rent they are paying on the Kingsgate Mall land, which is owned by the Vancouver School Board, should be set at the maximum possible use value of that land rather than the current zoning. That is all BD can actually use it for. Substantively, this means BD's rent has jumped from a million dollars to nine million dollars a year, which is a lot because you could do a lot with that bit of land there at Broadway and Main Street. It's a very prime piece of real estate. But it's also a very small little mall right now. Mm -hmm. It's Vancouver's weirdest mall. Yeah. It's and so honestly, I love Kingsgate Mall. Yeah. It's great. What Francis Beulah found in the court documents, though, is that among its arguments, Vancouver School Board has said that they are considering selling that land, and so they should be able to price it at whatever they want, or I guess if they don't get to price it at a higher amount, maybe they'll just sell it off. And this kind of raises the long-standing debate over that piece of land because it's been in the school board's possession for quite a long time since there used to actually be a school there. But now the question is, you know, do they hold on to it in the hopes of building a future school there, particularly as that area densifies, or do they sell it off and just let it become another high-rise in the area, which also needs more housing? Yeah, and like that that is an interesting question. I I almost feel like this is an opportunity for the school board to actually do the the kind of work with the developer to like put a school with a tower that like actually has housing for families in it. Like we we build a lot of of housing that effectively is just like financial instruments. It's like one bedroom you know, pocket bedroom, whatever. And that isn't a great place for people to live, especially if they have a family. If, if you want families to 
like live in these high density areas so much so that like schools become necessary in them then you gotta you gotta build the units that they can live in yeah i think this is a prime area for the school board to get into housing development we saw translink has the capacity now to do transit oriented development and they're starting to exercise that power the school board could do a lot of really good stuff here 18 which values like 50 million dollars and they're like we're we're not going to pay you any rent if you're going to demand 50 million dollars from us screw that and so it's all in appeals at the supreme court right now and the board can't take that unilateral action is at least the one thing judge michael stevens has ruled but yeah this is a messy dispute yeah yeah it is moving down broadway one one stop I think, on the as-yet-to-be-built Broadway line to the City Hall station, where Ken Sim has some new staff. Yeah, it was not a public announcement, but there is a new director of communications in the mayor's office, Dan Fumano, (laughs) who is fantastic. The irony. Yeah, Uh, well, a good director of communications should never be the news. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Harrison Fleming has joined the mayor's office. He comes to BC from the premier's offices of Jason Kenney of the UCP and Doug Ford of the Ontario PCs. Kent Clark on Twitter points out that this kind of ties together a theme of the mayor's office, which is a lot of staff from the federal conservatives, including Karima Alam, who worked with Pierre Polyev, Trevor Ford, who also worked with Pierre Polyev, that's chief of staff and director of operations, respectively, Melissa Morphy from Andrew Wilkinson's campaign, Patrick O'Connor from Christy Clark's campaign, basically just a lot of either BC Liberals or federal Conservatives, which shouldn't really be surprising to many, although I did see a lot of people pointing out, like, they when they launched ABC, they marketed it as a centrist political party, but here they have kind of just adopted the staff of mostly the right wing. Yeah, yeah. Part of it is because there are just more of those people available a lot of the like federal liberals who want jobs have been sec- sucked up by the federal government and like those of those of them who it because the, the federal government just pays for it you get it's a better job you have to live in ottawa but you know trade-offs you know there some of these some of these parties have just been in power for a certain amount of time and vancouver is a lovely place to live you know i can understand why why like the, the people who are taking these types of jobs are, you know, part of the, the political class and, you know, just jumping at opportunities. It's rare that new governments take office and are hiring a bunch of people and the timing just appears right. I think there's two other things to note here. First, one other thing Kent Clark brought up is why does a mayor's office need a, of 10 people need a chief of staff and a director of operations? And like, when you go down this list, most people are directors, which it's great if you can get that title, but if you're a director of one, are you really directing anything? And there is that like small bit of hypocrisy here around how ABC and Ken Sim ran quite openly critical of Kennedy Stewart and the bloated communications budgets of City Hall hiring, you know, a number of people to fill that staff. But I think we're both on the page of like, a city of 600,000 people should have a competent administration. Yeah. Yeah. Like I I don't I don't begrudge it. It like it takes people to to 
run a government. And I, I think that the idea of trying to get elected officials to do that, especially given how the, they, like, especially in Vancouver, they have to be in public fucking hearings all fucking day, <laughs> is is insane. So we, we of course, need these people. Otherwise, think- like, it's just unelected staff who are, are running anything. And sure, I know these people are unelected, but they are responsive to politics, which is something that staff are less so. The other main question is what level of competency do these individuals have in municipal politics? Like if you're bringing a lot of people from provincial and federal politics, there are some skills that translate in terms of the communications and navigating that. But municipal politics is also a very different beast in many ways. We've seen that when some people jump from running a campaign to chief of staff and trying to manage city hall like it's a you know, political party caucus when really it's a bunch of independents who could do whatever they want and face no consequences. Yeah. Yeah. It's challenging. It is challenging. It will be interesting to see how, how this works. Maybe it's a good hire. Maybe it's an absolute, you know, boneheaded move, but we will see. Stay tuned, I guess. In terms of things the city is trying to do though, there's a story here in, business in Vancouver that the city is once again trying to close some hookah shops in town. These are traditional quote-unquote smoking places that exist within the city. This bylaw is using the excuse that they are violating smoking prohibitions, alleging that they are using tobacco when the owners are saying that they are in fact using alternatives that are tobacco-free. Like, why? Who, who fucking cares? Like, I just feel like if people want to go to a place that is specifically designed and advertised as having tobacco as the primary purpose of the establishment, and like, then let them. Like, why? Why do we have to be so, like, insistent on like running everything there sometimes you sometimes you just gotta let something go Ugh. the owner of one of these the persian tea house is mohammedian hamid abdul hamid he faced a previous challenge in 2015 where the city tried to shut him down and at that point he decided to go on a hunger strike for 30 days after which the city finally went fine fine do, let just whatever and you know and largely they've been trying to look at possibly amending the bylaws and this includes some moves by city council to look at this or at least city councillors to essentially exempt his business from the bylaw but if he sells it or dies the exemption won't pass on and i guess that's the reasonable conclusion here but like if they're not doing tobacco, I'm still struggling to understand what the problem is. Like, I get the health issues with tobacco, but also we've seen that prohibition doesn't, doesn't work. work. No. And so... Also, like, it's just nice to have, like, it's just nice to have, like, one. Just one. I think you could have one tobacco license. Like... I don't. I don't even fucking care if they fucking have the tobacco there. L- like, just why? Well, it's it's an element of cultural, right? Of yeah, culture, exactly. Right. We, not everything needs to fit a very specific viewpoint, and 
there are people who come from countries where hookah smoking is quite prevalent and if we want them to feel welcome in what we call a multicultural society that includes allowing them to do the things they do even if they are harmful to the health because so is cannabis smoking but we're allowing that so is drinking alcohol but we allow that so is driving but we allow that driving is the worst of all of them <laughs> wait, wait until we hear my plans for a chairlift up main street <laughs> total nonsense yeah like I, if, we, if we're gonna allow smoking at the cannabis cultural lounge like just having one like grandfathered you know hookah bar is fine hookah lounge it's fine just deal with it city council well, out in my neck of the woods, there's been a couple interesting, I think, proposals come to our city council here in Coquitlam for new developments. One is another subdivision up Burke Mountain. This is getting quite high up the mountain at this point. And a developer wants to put 19 single-family homes in a lot on Harper Road. Like I said, quite a ways up. It's zoned largely for single-family homes yet, or it might not even be yet, but they want to put single-family homes around all the other single-family homes. This passed council with a dissent, and we will talk about that in a second. But what was notable here is most of council was quite critical of this, actually, including Mayor Richard Stewart, who has been mayor through the development of most of the single-family home developments up Burke Mountain, as far as I know. The mayor has said that this should be the end of the era of the single-family home in Coquitlam. Sometimes you do a thing, and then you say, that's enough, and end it, I guess. Councillor Robert Mazzarolo was the lone dissent opposing this plan entirely. He had said, our city has many very beautiful single-family house neighborhoods. I live in one of them. But he goes on to say, I don't believe we should remove all of them. That's nice for me. Some should stay. However, I do not believe we should be creating more given where the market is now and that this is not an appropriate use of the land. So there is some growing change. I think we're starting to see even in the suburbs that density is necessity going forward. Yeah. I, like, And I, I'm not certain that this lot is the appropriate place for that <laughs> density. For That's fair. <laughs> but... But it also might not be the best lot for even more homes. Like, maybe just nothing goes there, because putting too many more houses up that mountain just creates traffic until we can eventually get... Like, I don't think there's ever SkyTrain plans to go that far in that direction. More chairlifts! Yeah, it'll have to be chairlifts down the mountain. <laughs> yeah, like, I I think it's a... De like, it's good, it's good that they are beginning to take a hint. Like, they're beginning to clue in to the problem. <laughs> would have been nice if it were 10 years ago i i don't know what they're doing as an alternative but like good for them in another hearing at coquitlam city council a townhome development was brought forward and again robert mazzarolo was the sole dissent opposing this set of townhomes which you would think would be the ideal kind of density he would be supporting but in this case he argues that there are too few family units in it. In fact, townhomes should be purely for families, in his mind, with multi-bedrooms. This is a 59-unit development in Burquitlam. It would include four studio townhomes, 10 one-bedrooms, 28 two-bedrooms, and 17 three-bedrooms. 
Mazzarello's key thing to highlight is that in Burquitlam, there are quite a few towers that include studio and one-bedroom apartments. Let's keep the townhomes that have access to green space for places with multi-bedrooms so that kids and families could live in them and get outside easier. He's not wrong. He's not. He's not wrong. Yeah, I, I don't really actually have that all that much to say. I, I, I'm glad that people have finally clued into what the problem is, is that we are, like, making neighborhoods basically unlivable for families of anything less than, like, millionaire status. It's it's a good thing that that finally some public officials are taking note and taking at least stances that, that are doing the right thing. It's well done. Well done. On, on the whole, I think, like, I agree with the sentiment, but this unit development is 14 of 59 units are studio and one bedroom and like is that bad enough to kill it i i don't know but you know i think there is value in that one dissent voice oh, on a council sure. even if like they're not 100 percent right just having that vote on record is valuable in yeah. some ways to push the kind of yeah the, like direction. the next maybe the next development is going to like you know, move in that direction. I, I, I think it's a I think it's a, a good thing. And finally speaking of development, there's just a nice good read by Christopher Chung in the Tai from August fourteenth that I want to highlight that's on the Burnaby Housing Authority. This is the new agency that the city is about to launch to really move Burnaby ahead on affordable housing development. I say this is a good news story because we're so lacking good housing policy and Burnaby has been a very complicated city in terms of housing for a number of years. We, we talked a lot about how the 2018 election was largely fought in Burnaby around this question of is the right kind of housing being built in Burnaby with the number of towers that have gone up, the displacement of affordable rental low rises, well, single family neighborhoods have been prote protected. And Hurley and his housing task force did put forward a lot of work on this and some good recommendations, but the substantive movement has been a little bit slower. They put some good rental protections in, but where has been the development? And this signals a pretty good sign that Burnaby is going to put money into, well, put money where its mouth is. And, like, it's going to be a test case for other municipalities. Like, Vancouver doesn't innovate, really, <laughs> on, on this kind of stuff. It it is going to be like it, it's unfortunate that this is a thing that is downloaded from the the provincial government that should be doing this but they're not and the kind of private method of doing this has proven to be mired in controversies shall we say so like i it is one of the things where like government kind of has to take the lead and if it has to be the municipal government it has to be the municipal government yeah Technically, Vancouver has its own housing authority as well, and that has had stronger and weaker years over its history. Apparently, the resort municipalities of Whistler and Tofino also have housing authorities, but that's about it in the province. And the latter two there are largely to ensure that local workers in those resort communities can have somewhere to live, which is very important. That's yeah. important everywhere. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost like they've, they've got their head around the problem and, and they see, other places can see and they just don't understand that it also applies to them. 
So yeah, oh, we'll, well. we'll keep our eye on this as the consultations finish and they launch this. And hopefully in the new year, we start seeing some real movement from Burnaby on building affordable housing for Burnaby residents. And that encourages more. Yeah. In the meantime, maybe they can stay at the YMCA. <laughs> that, of course, is my very awkward segue into what we end every episode of the Cami Report with a Vancouverada, a little tidbit from Vancouver's history. This one covers the village people's famous song, YMCA. Yeah, piece in CBC. No, no journalist is named on this, but they quote... Glenn Chack, the creator and tour guide of the Really Gay History Tour, which I've heard really good things about. Mm-hmm. Me too. He, his story is that the village people were in the city of Vancouver working on an album, and the producer asked, what, what was this YMCA that they saw on Burrard Street over there, the Robert Lee location, during a lunch break? And the lead singer explained what it was, and he says to his producer, let me guess, you want me to write a song about it. And so they did. Basically, this song appeared on the Village People's 1978 album, Cruisin', and did reach number two on the Billboard's Hot 100. It was written in Vancouver and inspired by the Robert Lee YMCA, but it is, you know, kind of more broadly incorporating all YMCAs in a kind of milieu of or pastiche of, of YMCA across the North American continent. Officially, the song is about hanging out in urban neighborhoods in your youth. And if you say it's about going for illicit gay sex, you could get sued by the creators and the village people. Good, good Lord. Okay. Well, we would never want to imply something like that. And so I think it's best that we end this episode of the Camby Report for Leg and Boot Media. I'm Matthew Naylor. I'm Ian Bushfield. Good day. It's raining in Guangzhou, Celsius is 33. The weather woman wants what a wits on the CBC. All across Cascadia, temperatures they will rise for. Key summers here to stay, no sea breeze to blow it away. We will keep you apprised for a wee dome that's coming to the west, to the west. The mercury is rising, no relief on the horizon Just seven days of summer to survive Stay alive The thermometer today reads 39 If the wind were blowing, it would be just warm, not deadly hot People were saying we don't get weather like this a lot My house was built for rain, not heat, I haven't got AC just a fan or just play for the return of the sea breeze They were at each apartment and house another lovely zone And nobody could sleep without a way to cool their home Three days and they're exhausted, no way to keep themselves cool Can't be outside of the six hour in a local swimming pool Or oh, heat domes that's coming to the west, to the west the mercury is rising, no relief on the horizon to Seven days of summer to survive Stay alive The thermometer today is 41 So curse the sun 
Asking for the infirmant Elderly In the midst of a pandemic No one to check in and see if they were alright So they swear they quarantined inside Days would go by before someone would realize they died Seeing 23 rolls through the tinder dry brush They got somewhere to go, the conductor is in a rush They're too fast for the turn, their break box are too spark and flame Now all that's left of Leighton are its wounds, its wounds are named The drought's a servant of the place, fires that go on for days Ripping through the town, reserving for its wither paws The nation's highest temperature on record preceded the burn Like the constant two souls, the down of the it's history and laws A heat dome's a cavern to the west, to the west The mercury is rising, no relief on the horizon Just seven days of summer to survive Stay alive The thermometer today reads 42 Just try to pull through Classical heat stroke is a bad way to die When your body's calorific content's way too high Your organ chopped down one by one Your mind takes its leave too Till you pass out and die Breathing delirious and confused On the seventh day the winds return Temperatures start to fall And people start to search for rooms to blame for it all Victorious says it's weather See and has lawyers retained And 619 people find themselves in their graves Oh, a heat dome's a coming to the west, to the west The mercury is rising, no relief on the horizon Just seven days of summer to survive Stay alive, stay alive, stay alive Through those seven days of summer to survive <laughs>